Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about Christmas. Um, I entitled my message, Putting Christ in Christmas. So we'll kind of talk about how to do that. And then uh, then we'll sing a few Christmas carols together. I thought that might be kind of a a few fun things to do for Diana to lead us in that. And uh, and we'll probably get out of here a little early. I know it's a really busy time of year, and a lot of people are busy trying to catch up with buying gifts and all the other obligations and office parties and all that that are going on, and people are sick and that. So I'm really thankful that you're here. Uh, I'm blessed to be able to be here with you and uh, talk about Christmas tonight. So, um, yeah, I'm excited for that. Uh, a couple of things, though, before uh, we get going. Um well, actually, one thing, actually. Uh, if you don't have anything going on on New Year's Eve, um, we're putting on kind of an event for the church in the cafe starting at 7 o'clock. It has all kinds of fun activities to do, and I'm still trying to figure out what some of those are. And I would be really blessed to have a few people helping me with that and kind of, uh, yeah, just there to help, you know, that night so I don't have to feel like I have the pressure of doing other things. Uh, so if you're able to help, if you want to come, come. If you want to come and help, talk to me. Uh, that would be a huge blessing. Uh, but I'm sure it'll be a, a really fun night. we got some neat things. We're going to do a Bible scavenger hunt. Something I'm kind of making up. So I have a feeling it's either going to be really, really great or it's just going to be a huge waste of time. One of the two. Uh, <laughs> So far, I'm really praying that the first option will be uh, the case. Uh, but, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to watch a movie called uh, Before the Wrath, um, which is a really neat movie. It was made a couple of years ago. And it, it talks about the ancient Jewish uh, wedding um, kind of ritual or what a ancient Jewish wedding looked like. And it's really fascinating because the, the archaeological evidence that kind of tells us what that looked like with this wedding feast and all of that and the way that proposals and marriages work. It's, a, it's an exact picture of what the Bible says about the Lord's return and, and the way that he's going to come for his church. Uh, so we're going to watch that. That'll be fun. We'll have some other games. We'll have uh, some appetizers and desserts and things like that. So I think it'll be a great night. We'll bring in the New Year praying and having communion. So if you don't have anything to do on New Year's, uh, come here. So I'm going to invite you to that. Now, if you have your Bible, uh, open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, you need to repent and grab one from over there. Um, but Luke chapter 2. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, uh, we do thank you that we get to be here. Lord, I I know that this group is a little smaller. I know it's a busy time of year. I know that uh, it's a chaotic time of year, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. um, But but I thank you that that you're here, and I thank you that you say where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are present. And I thank you that you do amazing things with small groups, Lord. And and I thank you that you, uh, this Christmas story is going to show that you enter into our mess and the things that are messed up and uh, our chaos and all that. And, and you identify with us and 
you point us to the, the Lord and you uh, redeem those things, Lord. So we're thankful for that and we pray that you would do that right now. I pray that you would speak to us and uh, encourage us and edify us and comfort us and and um, and really just help us to, to be able to honor you in this season um, and to get out of it what you want us to get out of it. I believe that you put these feasts here for uh, a, a reason. You've given us holidays for a reason, and it's to increase our faith and draw us closer to you. So may that happen uh, tonight and during this season. We love you. We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, again, I entitled this uh, Putting Christ in Christmas, and you'll see why in just a moment. You know, my grandma, uh, she was a really, really sweet lady. In, in fact, I, I never really saw her get mad. Um, uh, only one time in my life I heard her cuss. I, I remember it uh, extremely vividly. Me and my cousins were in a, uh, her and my grandfather's old Oldsmobile, and we're driving down the uh, State College Boulevard, and she's going to turn right there on, on the Placentia, and and she missed something or missed a turn, and, and she said, oh, shh. And all of us were like, oh, Grandma, cut. It was like the car right side, right? And for the rest of her life, it's like, hey, remember that time we heard Grandma cuss? <laughs> it's like the one time that she cussed in her entire life. Uh, she wouldn't use a gun, but she was a, a really, really sweet woman. But she would get riled up over one thing. There's one thing I remember that she would always get riled up over. Uh, if you ever saw, if she ever saw or heard someone say Merry Xmas, she would get fired up. She would be like, no, it's Merry Christmas. Don't be taking Christ out of Christmas. That was her whole thing. And and, and she was really, really passionate about it. Well, it, it, it's really impossible to take Christ out of Christmas. Even saying Merry Xmas uh in a way, they're saying Merry Christmas. The early church, the first symbol that they had uh, for Jesus and, and for being a Christian, the first way they identified themselves was with a simple mark, and it was the Greek letter T. And they did that because, uh, well, there was persecution and things like that, and so they didn't really want to you know, put a sign up, you know, First Baptist Church or Calvary Chapel of Jerusalem and all that, and identify, hey, come, yeah, this is where we are. So they used a, a very common symbol, something that you know other people use and things like that, but they would be able to identify. And it was the Greek letter T. Well, we have a letter in our alphabet that resembles the Greek letter T. Do you know what that is? It's the letter X. Right? And so even when it says Merry X-mess, it's Merry Christ-mess, because the X is really a symbol for Christ. So no matter how hard we try, you really can't take Christ out of Christmas. But about, I think we've all experienced the, the sentiment that she had living in the time and place that we live. Not only do we live in a, a time and place where our culture is trying to remove Christ and remove Jesus, remove God from everything that has to do with the society in general, but especially Christmas and things like that, but it's also replacing it with things that are obviously pagan. Uh, and, and, and so we don't like that. You know, over the last month or so especially, I've seen all kinds of Facebook posts 
of well-meaning Christians who love the Lord greatly, but they're trying to explain or, or argue that Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas. Have you guys seen any of those? Have you guys had anybody telling you lately that, hey, you're a Christian, you shouldn't celebrate Christmas, Christmas is pagan, all kinds of things like that? It, it was like constantly on my feet. I, 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 I mean, I had to, you know, go off a couple of groups just because I got sick of seeing it. But they say things like this. They'll say, you know, the early church didn't celebrate Christmas. You know, nowhere in church tradition uh, was the early church celebrating Christmas. It didn't actually become a holiday until Constantine made it one. When, when he merged uh, a, a pagan holiday called uh, Saturnalia with Christmas. Uh, when the, the church merged with the Roman Empire in the 300. It is. You know, you, you, you see things like, uh, you know, the Puritans, they had outlawed Christian uh, Christmas. In fact, they had passed laws saying that if you exhibit too much Christmas flair, that you'll get fined, shamed. It was against the law to, to celebrate Christmas. You know, I've seen things like saying, hey, Santa and Satan are spelled with the same letters. You know, it's not that that far. They, they, they point to the commercialism, the materialism, the overall debauchery, and say no way could this be godly or something Christians should be involved in. So there's this debate. Should Christians celebrate Christ Christmas? Is, is this something that Christians should do? Is this something that honors the Lord? Well, I want to say this. It's okay to celebrate Christmas. Let's just do it in a way that honors Christ. So throw in the word okay and honors on your outline if you have one. You know, we, it's, it's totally okay to celebrate Christmas. We just, you know, we don't want to do it the way that the world does it. Now it's true that Christmas isn't one of the biblical feasts in Leviticus 23, but neither was Hanukkah. And in John chapter 10, we see Jesus celebrating Hanukkah. So the argument that it has to be a biblical feast, uh, something in the Old Testament commands us to celebrate, uh, doesn't really work because we have New Testament evidence of Jesus celebrating a feast, a festival, that wasn't one of the Levitical feasts. I'm sure we all know what Hanukkah is. During the intertestamental periods, the Greeks had taken over the temple and they had desecrated it and God raised up a deliverer, Judas Maccabeus, who, who went in and cleansed the temple and delivered it. And, and during that eight days, uh, the light in the temple continued to burn without anybody adding any oil to it. And that's why there's eight candles in Hanukkah. Well, in John chapter 10, it says this, starting in verse 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Well, the Feast of Dedication is the same thing as Hanukkah. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's celebrating Hanukkah. In fact, he's, he, he, he's making the opportunity to tell people that, that he's really the light of the world. Right? He is the one. And, and, and he doesn't go out like the lights of the celebration. Right? So, so that argument about it having to be a biblical feast in the Old Testament doesn't make any sense. Another thing they like to point to is 
Jeremiah chapter 10. Have any of you guys had anybody tell you that you shouldn't celebrate Christmas, you shouldn't have a Christmas tree because of Jeremiah chapter 10? Well, Jeremiah chapter 10 isn't about Christmas trees at all. I could see how people today might think that. It says this, for the customs of the people are delusional because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of of the hands of a craftsman with a, with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not topple. Well, that kind of sounds like it could be describing a Christmas tree. But if you read the rest of the passage, you see that it's clearly not, that the context is talking about something else. It's talking about idolatry. If you go on in verse 5, it says, Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. And they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. For they can do no harm. Nor can they do any good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. And great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men and all the nations and in all the kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Obviously, it's talking about idolatry, and it's not talking about Christmas trees. You see, what's happening there when people are trying to ascribe that to Christmas trees, they're using something called eisegesis. You see, eisegesis is when we take something from our culture and we read it into Scripture. You see, that's a bad way to study the Bible. When we study the Bible, we want to use what's called exegesis, where we're pulling out of the text. What, what was the original author's meaning to the original audience? When Jeremiah wrote this, what did it mean in the time that Jeremiah wrote it to the people he wrote it to? That's what we're looking for. They didn't have Christmas trees when Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. They didn't ex- Christmas didn't exist, so a Christmas tree couldn't have existed. So this cannot be talking about Christmas trees. It's talking about idolatry. So we want to make sure when we study the Bible that we're looking for what was the original writer, the original author saying to his original audience. And, and, and that's the meaning. And then once we have the meaning, we could take it and apply it to today. Now, it might be fair to say this, that Jeremiah 10 excludes idolatry and a lot of Christians today have made Christmas an idol and and are making an idol out of some of these things, well, then it's not getting rid of Christmas. It's getting rid of the idolatry, repenting of that and, and celebrating Christmas in a way that honors the Lord. In Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because... The days are evil. Some translations say, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. That that word time, it's it's not the the Greek word uh, chronos. It's not speaking about chronological time. It's speaking of the opportunity. You know, redeem the opportunity in in, in front of you. God's put opportunities in front of you. Redeem them for God's glory and and for his kingdom. I have no doubt that if Paul... If Jesus were here, that they would celebrate Christmas. They would be taking every opportunity they could to use the things around them to point people to the Lord. 
and say, hey, this is the season for Jesus. They would be using every opportunity that Christmas would afford to proclaim Jesus and the gospel. You know, if the world wants to give us a season to celebrate the incarnation of our Savior, we'd be foolish to not take it. I mean, can you imagine how this looks to the rest of the world? The season where the world kind of acknowledges that this is a, a Christian holiday, and to some extent, most of the world participates in some amount of fashion in that. And then they look at Christians who are saying, no, Christmas is evil, it's like the devil, don't talk it. I mean, that must be so confusing for the world. They, they must think we're absolutely crazy. He said, we we don't want to reject things. We want to redeem things. We've already established that our society has made a mockery of the holiday. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. How do we redeem Christmas? How do we put Christ back in Christmas? How do we celebrate Christmas in a way that honors God? And I want to use a really, really familiar text to us to do that. Luke chapter 2. Verses 1 through 20. When I say this is a, a super familiar text, I'm not saying that lightly at all. I mean, this is a text that's even used in worldly environments. This is a, a, a Bible verse that even the world reads and knows. Can any of you think of a worldly setting or a worldly environment, a pagan environment, where this text is read or recited? And that's very fun. At Disneyland, yes, if you go two days a year, they have the candlelight procession down Main Street. I was there a handful of years ago. And Chris Pratt, of all people, stood up, and he loved Luke chapter 2 on Main Street of Disneyland. I mean, who would have thought that? What about Peanuts? It even made it into the comic books. <laughs> I mean, it is all over the place. And I, and I just want to give us this warning. Don't let the familiarity of it kind of drown out the truth of it. I, I think we have this tendency when there's things that we are super familiar with, we just stop listening. We stop paying attention. We let our mind kind of drift. And, or, or, or it just becomes so ordinary that we just kind of go through it. And, and, and we lose the splendor. We lose the majesty of these familiar things. I remember when I first moved or started living in Jerusalem, I would go for these walks around the walls of Jerusalem. And and there's one turn. You'd go by the, the eastern side of Jerusalem, and you have the Mount of Olives there on your left, and then you make a right, and you're making that corner by the Dung Gate. And, uh, <laughs> and you look over, and it's the southern steps of the Temple Mount right there. And, and it's just, it, 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 it's amazing. I mean, you're looking at it, that's one of the few places we know that Jesus literally walked up. Well, I mean, that's where Peter preached on Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And, and, and you're walking by and you're just like in awe. And you're like, wow, you know, that's the southern steps. And I get to walk by this every day. Well, then after a few months, I remember walking by and it just became so normal. And it was like walking by the 7-Eleven by my house now. It was just something that was there. Because I started to become familiar with it. And we don't want to let this happen with this passage. So let's look at Luke chapter 2. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius 
was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men, with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. That is the word of the Lord. So I've identified uh, eight kind of tips or suggestions from this passage I just read that are going to help us celebrate Christmas in a way that honors God, but also that's going to help us get from this season what God wants us to get. I believe God wants to use this season, this Christmas season, to grow our faith. He's given us seasons like this to use for evangelism and for spiritual growth. And this first principle I want us to see is we need to trust. Uh, Man's decrees accomplish God's decrees. So from the word trust and accomplish for verse 1. Man's decrees accomplish God's decrees. Uh, Look at verses 1 through 5 again. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. It's significant, I just want to point this out, that in verse 4 it talks about uh, Mary and Joseph being 
uh, from the house and the family of David. Right, what, what that's setting up for Christ to be presented as the Messiah. Right, because he had to be from the lineage of Abraham and the lineage of David. You could read in Second uh, uh, Kings chapter 7, this uh, story where David is promised that one of his descendants would sit on that throne forever. You have this Davidic uh, promise that, that David was given. And, uh, and, and from there, the Jews knew that when the Messiah came, he had to be from the lineage of David. But there's this census, and it's ordered by Rome. And they would issue these censuses for two reasons. Number one was for military purposes. They want to know, you know, how many people are able to fight, how big their army is, things like that. And then the other reason was for taxation. Rome wanted to know how much they could tax people. So they would have all kinds of censuses and things like that, trying to gather this kind of information. Now, the Jews, they were excluded from serving in the Roman military. Uh, I, I believe that was because the Romans really looked down on the Jews. They looked at them as these kooky religious people and not worthy to fight with us. And, you know, a Roman soldier is probably like, hey, I don't want to share a foxhole with this religious Jewish person, you know. And, and so they were excluded from serving in the military. So that tells us that this census, it was all about taxation. It was all about how much could they get out of each Jewish family for taxes. But some of the scholars tell people they, they have a problem with these verses. They have a problem with this census. Uh, they, they say things like, we have absolutely no historical evidence of a worldwide census at this time. And that's true. There's no extra biblical evidence uh, that confirms that there was a census where the whole world had to come uh, during the, right around the time of 6 B.C., uh, furthermore, they'll say things like Quirinius wasn't governor of Syria until uh, well after Jesus was born. They'll say it's highly unusual for people to have to travel for another town to register for a census. Usually they would just have you register in the town you're in. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because you're going to be services in the town you're in and things like that, like when we do censuses. It wouldn't make sense for me to go to San Diego and register for it because I'm not going to use any of the services in San Diego, right? Uh, so they want to know. Uh, so, so that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And further, usually when there was a census, it was just the husband that would go. It would just be one person. There was no need for the, the whole family to go and register for it. So they say there's problems with the Lucan account of this census. They said that Luke made a mistake, or, 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 or worse, that he, he purposely misrepresented the facts to make his case or prove a point. But I don't buy that one bit. I don't believe Luke made a mistake. I don't believe that he misrepresented the facts, first of all, because the Bible's inspired by God, and we know that <laughs> all, all Scripture is inspired, and, and God doesn't make any mistakes. Second, if we read how Luke began his gospel, the first few verses of it, we see that he was very, very, very careful to make sure that there weren't any mistakes. He wanted to make sure that people had the accurate truth. He said, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compel, compel 
an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well as having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. You know, Luke was very careful about the way that he represented who Jesus was and this birth account of his. So to say there's a mistake there, I am just not buying it. So how do we reconcile these things? How do we reconcile the evidence of this census with what Luke has written? To be honest, I don't know. (laughs) But to be honest, I also don't see it as a problem. I see it as all the more a miracle of God. That he would cause this Roman ruler to call for a highly unusual census, which brought both Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at the exact time that Jesus was prophesied to be born. I mean, that's a pretty big coincidence, right? No, it's a miracle of God. It's a miracle of God that Mary, a pregnant woman, is going to make it all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, you know, without having serious problems. So this whole thing is a divine miracle. Micah 5.2 says that Jesus needed to be born in Bethlehem. Daniel chapter 9 predicted the time that Jesus had to be born. And God was using the census that was given by a pagan king to bring these things into place. I'm sure Joseph and Mary weren't all that excited about traveling 90 miles while nine months pregnant just because some dumb politician said so. But they went. They obeyed. You know, uh, today I'm kind of baffled by some Christians. I really am. Uh, I, I, I get uh, one of the, the classes I teach at the school is eschatology, end times. And another thing uh, that I oversee is the Salt Light Ministry, which has to do with politics. So I kind of see how these two things converge. Uh, but, but I hear a whole lot of Christians that are really excited about the Lord coming back. Like, I mean, they're really pumped up about it. But then they complain about the things that are happening in the world. They complain about the student edicts that our politicians are meeting. They, they don't make sense to me because these stupid edicts are the very things that are setting up the stage for the Lord's return. I'm sure there was a lot of people that were complaining, oh, this stupid taxation. i got to go all the way to Bethlehem just to register for this tax and all of this. Well, those were the events that brought the Lord to the earth, the greatest moment in history. And maybe some of these events that we don't like, this forcing people to get a vaccine, and some of these things are going to be the exact precursors that are going to lead to the Lord returning. You know, it really doesn't make sense to complain. Right? When we realize that God is the author of history, that God is the one who's providentially working out in history to accomplish his plan, that he's sovereign over everything. Well, when we're complaining, who are we really complaining about? And I love that. Joseph and Mary, they just, they just went. 
Another thing I want to point out in this story, it shows us that just because that you're chosen and beloved of God, uh, things aren't going to be easy. Right? Mary and Joseph, they're in God's will. They're being obedient to God. But it, it had to seem like God's closing doors. It had to seem like things are getting easier. Aren't getting easier. They're getting harder. I'm sure we're thinking, man, God can't be in this. What's going on? You know, I, I, I had this angel appear to me and tell me I'm going to have this sign and, and, and I'm favored by God and all of this and getting excited about it. And now I'm being told that I have to travel 90 miles while nine months pregnant and go to this place where it seems like God's closing doors. Well, no, God was getting them exactly where they needed to be. And, and sometimes that's going to be the case. Sometimes God's going to tell you to do something, and, and you're following the will of God, and it just seems like it's getting harder and harder. There's more and more obstacles thrown in your way. And I think sometimes God just does that so that when it does come to pass, he gets all that much more glory. And people can see that it really was the Lord that got them there. God doesn't necessarily make the road easier. He strengthens us to be able to go through the road and get where he wants us to be. Again, they had to go 90 miles. Nine months pregnant. Walking. I mean, for context, that's like from here to San Diego. Probably took them a week to walk there. But they went. Point number two, we need to prioritize getting the inside ready over the outside ready. You know, this time of year, there's a lot of people preparing. It seems like nonstop preparing. You're preparing homes, you're preparing gifts, you're preparing parties, preparing meals. Might I point out that in the first Christmas, the greatest Christmas, didn't have any of this. The only preparing what was going on in the first Christmas was preparing to go to this census in Bethlehem. Well, that's not entirely true. In chapter 1, there was these angels appearing and preparing the hearts and mind of Mary and Joseph to get ready to be able to celebrate this first Christmas, to have Jesus born. I know those are other preparations aren't going away. And I know that there's decorating to be done, that there's gifts to be bought and given, there's family gatherings to be had. And these are good things, but let's not forget that God cares more about the inside of the cup than he does the outside of it. Isn't that what Jesus told those Pharisees? You see, I mean, we could go through so much effort trying to make the party nice, trying to make the house nice, have the greatest decorations, give the biggest gifts, all of that. And, and, and miss the whole point. We never have our heart draw closer to the Lord. Never uh, experience the, the Lord coming into our heart. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, when he's given his eight woes to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish, that the outside may be clean, come clean also. 
So if we want this Christmas to have the type of effect that God wants us to have, we need to start inside. We need to start by preparing our heart, not our home. We need to get our, our minds ready, you know, through the Word of God and through prayer and things like that, not our shopping list, which things are secondary. Point number three, we need to make room for Jesus. Someone the word Jesus. Look at verse 7. It says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There was no room for Jesus in the inn. Uh, in John's prologue to his gospel, it says this, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. This is pretty amazing, right? It, 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 it says in John 1.3 that Jesus made everything. There, there, there's nothing made in the world that Jesus hasn't made. That would include the inn. That would include Bethlehem. And he's going there. His parents are going there, pregnant with him. And they're saying, no, we don't have room for you, Jesus. You can't be here. Even though you made it, even though it belongs to you, everything belongs to God, you can't come here. You can't sit here. You know, there's a lot of theories about this inn, what it is, but it really doesn't matter. Some people say it was a guest inn. Some say it was like a, a shelter where people stayed. You know, uh, some people say it was, you know, kind of carved into a, the side of a, a, a hill. It was a, a cave. Um, but, but that doesn't really matter. What we know is that they just wouldn't welcome Mary and Joseph. You know, maybe it was already full. Maybe it took Mary and Joseph longer to get to Bethlehem because they got home pregnant. And by the time they got there, the inn was already filled up. I don't know. Maybe the innkeeper was just out of self-righteousness and trying to shame Mary, wouldn't let him stay there because she was unmarried and pregnant. I don't know. But for whatever reason, they weren't allowed to stay in the inn. There was no vacancy for Jesus. And sadly, there's too many Christians that don't have room for Jesus. I can't tell you how many times I hear, I'm too busy to go to church and to read the Bible. I, I, I literally hear that all the time. You know, if you're too busy to go to church, you're too busy to read the Bible, then you're just too busy. You need to refigure out your schedule, right? You, you need to make some room for Jesus. How many families prioritize their kids' sporting events and activities over church. I was listening to a sermon the other day. It was when it was titled "When Ball Became Baal," and and how sports could be a good thing for kids and all that, and they could learn some valuable lessons and get exercise. But what kind of lessons are we teaching our kids when we prioritize their sporting events over going to church? Are we really showing them what's Important. You know, the, this idea of, of not making room for Jesus uh, is just something to think about, especially in times like the Christmas season, because we're extra busy. We have extra activities. We have extra responsibilities and extra distractions everywhere. There's all kinds of things that are trying to 
pulled by for our attention today. And there's so many other things that are kind of being a substitute for actually making room for Jesus. You know, we go to this holiday Christmas party and it's got some Christmas decorations and we sing a few Christmas songs and we think, hey, we're spending time with Jesus. Well, are we really? Are we making room for Jesus or are we letting this thing substitute for that? We need to make it a priority. We need to say, you know what? No matter what, I'm going to spend time with the Lord. And the more busy I am, the more things I have going on, the more time I need to spend with Him. You know, Martin Luther, at the height of the Protestant Reformation, you know, he's leading this Reformation from the Catholic Church, extremely busy guy. He said this, he's like, if I can't pray for three hours, I can't do anything. And, and he said, because I have so much going on, that's why I have to pray for so long. I have more things to pray about. It's not like I'm extra busy, so I, I minimize my time with the Lord. No, the more busy you are, the more time you need with the Lord because you have more things to pray about. It's, it's the opposite. It becomes really, really easy for things to crowd Jesus out. But don't let that happen. Have you ever thought about how busy Jesus must have been? Like once he started his ministry? I'm sure all day long he had all kinds of people coming to him, wanting things from him, you know, in crowds, and people wanting to be healed, people wanting to you know, tell a story, all kinds of stuff, just constantly, people, people coming and coming. I'm sure that, you know, he was exhausted by the end of the day. But he still prioritized having that quiet time. He made sure that he would get up and do it at a time where he couldn't be bugged. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. If we do whatever it takes to have time with God, it's going to be more faith. I, I, I realize this, you know, I, I need about five hours of sleep every good night's sleep. And, and there was a time, a season in my life where I was really, really busy and, um, and, and I learned this really, really fast. That, yeah, I might feel like I need five hours, but I function a lot better on four hours of sleep and an hour with the Lord than five hours of sleep. And that's because I believe that the Lord is the one who sustains us. He's the one sustaining all things. It's not my sleep that sustains me. It's not my diet that sustains me. It's not my exercise that sustains me. It's the Lord who sustains me. And if I really believe that, I'm going to prioritize spending time with Him over these other things. And it won't be in vain, I promise you. Now in verses 8 and on, Luke's going to kind of shift uh, the setting. And, and now we're going to go from this setting and, and what brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem uh, to this uh, angels coming and pronouncing to shepherds that, that Jesus was born. Right? Uh, it's interesting when you think about it. Mary and Joseph, they got this angelic visit regarding the birth of Jesus. And so do these shepherds. The birth of John the Baptist, his dad, Zechariah, 
prophesied over John. And at the birth of Jesus, angels prophesied the word of God. Really what we have is God proclaiming who Jesus is at his birth. But I, I, I love, uh, so in, in, in verse 15 it says this, that it said that these angels had, had came and had proclaimed this, and then in verse 15 it says, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so there's these angels, these messengers coming and, and, and pronouncing this, but the shepherds knew that, that it was the, the original source was, was from God. It was a message from God. It was God who was proclaiming it. And what did they proclaim? Verses 8 and 9, it says, In the same region there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. I love this. These shepherds, they're just tending their sheep, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appears right next to them. We aren't told much about this angel other than that it was suddenly there. It was similar to the angel that appeared after Jesus ascended into heaven. In Luke 24, verse 4, it says, While the, the, the disciples, they're standing there, they're perplexed about what they saw. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. These two angels are suddenly there by the disciples. Saying, don't you know that this same Jesus has to return the same way that he left? Or how about in Acts chapter 12? It's this angel that suddenly appears next to Peter when he's in prison and delivers him from the prison cell. Isn't it great to know that we're not alone? Yeah, God's with us, but he also has these angels, these ministering spirits that are working the will of God on our behalf. And every now and then, God's going to peel back and let us see into the spirit realm, and we get these glimpses of, of these angels and, and them working for us. I'm so glad that the Bible gives us these pictures. But in verse 4, we're going to see with these shepherds, we need to remember the outcasts and the lowly. Verse 8, it says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. The shepherds were really looked down upon. Uh, they, they couldn't testify in court. They were considered uh, untrustworthy. Um, even all the way back in Genesis, remember? When they came into to Egypt, it says that shepherds were despised in Egypt. Um, they just weren't. Like they were considered these outcasts, and and to make matters worse, they would tend animals, 
and they have to watch the animals pretty much 24-7 so they wouldn't be able to go to the temple services. There would be times that they'd have to care for wounded animals and animals would die, things like that, which would render them unclean and so they wouldn't be able to participate in Israel's worship. And so they were just really looked down upon. Right? They, they, they weren't looked at as, as people that were trustworthy. Yet these shepherds are the first people God chooses to announce the birth of the Messiah to. You know, if we really want to exhibit the spirit of Christmas, we'll look for forgotten people and we'll spend time with them. We'll look for the lowly people and we'll bring them into our fold. Can you imagine how much that would bless someone? You see someone that's alone during this season and everybody else is having fun, enjoying their family, enjoying good things, and, and for whatever reason they're alone. Or if you come and spend time with them, or better yet, bring them into what you're doing, that would have to be a, a huge thing for that person. In fact, the, the world may have low esteem for shepherds, but God doesn't. Have you thought about how many important or prominent people in the Bible were shepherds? Abel was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Joseph was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Prophets like Amos were shepherds. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the great shepherd. So there might be these professions that seem humble and, and seem kind of uh, lowly, things that the, the world may look down upon, but God doesn't look up down upon that. God doesn't define you by what you do for a living. The world may say, ah, he's just a janitor, janitor. but God's like, no, he's mine. I chose him. I died for him. I gifted him. I inhabit him. I speak through him. So God doesn't judge the way that the world does. The world looks at the outside. The world looks at your appearance. But God judges the heart. And we need to do the same. So we need to look for people that might be on the outside and bring them in. Number five, we need to meditate on Easter. Just one word, Easter. Look at verses 10 through 12. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So we need to remember Easter. He's like, what are you talking about? How is remembering Easter the key to doing Christmas the right way? Well, it, it really is. Well, this first Christmas, these angels, they give an Easter message. Their pronouncement was all about Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus to save his people from their sins. You know, even in the, the description that the angels give of how they're going to find this baby Jesus, it's picturing their uh, Jesus' death. 
Look at verse uh, 12. It says, This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Um, you know, these aren't ordinary shepherds. If you read Alfred Erdschein's book, The Life and Times of the Messiah, he talks about this. He talks about how these shepherds around Bethlehem, they had a specific job, and it was to raise sheep for the sacrificial system in the temple. And, and that was their whole job, was to continually raise these sheep so that they could be sacrificed in the temple. And we know that the Bible tells us that there were two qualifications that an animal had to meet to be one of the temple sacrifices, right? It had to be without spot and without blemish. Without spot meaning that it didn't have any birth defects. It was born perfect. And without blemish meaning that it didn't incur any injuries or any marks uh, once it was born. So when a, a sheep was born that didn't have a spot, they would take it and they would wrap its arms in tight and its legs and they would wrap it in cloth really tight and then they would take it and they would stick it in the manger in this feeding trough so that it was real snug in there and couldn't move around. That way it couldn't flail around and injure itself and make it not be able to be used for a sacrifice. So when these shepherds come to see the baby Jesus in the manger wrapped in swaddling cloths, they would have recognized exactly what that was. That, hey, that looks just like the animals that we raised to be sacrificed. And we know that John the Baptist says that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So even in his birth, this picture that Luke is giving us of the birth of Jesus, we get a picture of his death. And that's because Jesus came to God. You know, the main focus of the gospel narratives, it's hardly any of it is on, on the birth of Jesus, if you think about it. There's four gospels, only two of them talk about the birth of Jesus. In the gospel of Matthew, it pretty much talks about it kind of like in passing. It doesn't really give much detail to it. We get a little bit more detail here. But even in the birth narrative, it's, it's, it's not so much about the actual birth of Jesus. It's more about these angels coming and speaking to John and, uh, you know, this account with John and Elizabeth and with Elizabeth and Mary and these angels speaking to Mary and Joseph and all of this. Yet there's a large sections of the Gospels. The, the Gospel of John, over half of it, uh, is dedicated to the Passion narrative, to Jesus dying on the cross. That's the focus of it. It's, it's always about the cross. That's what Jesus came for. I'm reading this really interesting devotional going through December. And there's, uh, for every day of the month, there's a, uh, really a, it's a sermon by these famous preachers. They're thus Christmas sermons. And, and I was shocked at how many of them, their main point was that, hey, if we want to get the most out of Christmas and we want to see Christmas the right way, we need to remember Easter. We need to remember that Jesus came to die. That was the whole point of it. Jesus, the, the, the immaculate birth, immaculate conception and all that, wouldn't mean anything if Jesus didn't die and raise from the dead. I believe the verse that most speaks of the spirit of Christmas is in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. I, I think this right here really is the spirit of Christmas. 
It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. It's like the name of Jesus. Every name will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if we want to kind of inhabit the spirit of Christmas, we need to die to self. We need to live to serve others. That's what Jesus did. So he emptied himself. He took on the, the form of a servant, even unto the point of death. If we're going to make Jesus seen to this world, or if we're going to manifest the incarnation of Christ in this lost world, it's going to come from denying ourselves, saying no to our flesh, living to serve and to please our master and others. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Good news of great joy. This literally is the gospel, the good news. These angels are proclaiming the gospel at the birth of Christ to these shepherds. And notice how this gospel message, this good news, is for all people. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the priests. It's not just for those who have everything together. The gospel is for everyone, for Jew and Gentile. It's for shepherd and wise men. It's for poor and it's for rich. Jesus is the good news for all people. But he also needs to be the good news for you personally. I love how both of these come out in this text. He's the good news for all people. But look at verse 11. It says, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Yes, Jesus is the Savior of the world. But you have to let him be your Savior of your soul. In John 1, we see that he came to his own. But there was his own who would not receive him. But to as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. But you personally have to receive him. But how good news, how much of good news is this? What's the best news ever? Verse 11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This phrase for today throughout the Bible uh, it's often speaking of like a turning point in redemptive history. Uh, this, this, this new uh, era uh, of, of experiencing God in a greater capacity. And that's exactly what happened at the birth of our Lord Jesus. But it says that this good news, this uh, Jesus, that he's going to bring three things. Or he's going to be three things. First of all, he's going to be a savior. He's going to be a savior. If anyone understood the need for a savior, it's these shepherds. Think about it. Remember, they're not ordinary shepherds. They're shepherds provided sheep for the sacrifice. 
And the sheer number of these sheep, the fact that they have to keep producing sheep day after day after day, two sheep at least a day, for these sacrifices, it, it, it testifies to the fact that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins. That there needs to be an ultimate savior. <laughs> that, that these animal sacrifices aren't cutting it. And so if anybody realized the fact that there needed to be a savior, it was these shepherds. And it was going to be good news. But it says, for today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior. Who is Christ the Lord? That word Christ, it means the anointed one. He is the Christ, or, or Messiah is another word for that. Christ means anointed one. In the Old Testament, many people were anointed for tasks. Uh, the offices of priest and, and, and king and, and prophet would be anointed. So, so the Jews, they, they, they understood what anointing was. They understood that there were people that were anointed. Yet they looked forward to an ultimate deliverer who would provide a, 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 a delivery unlike any of the other deliverers. And he would be not just anointed, but he would be the anointed one. And that's who Jesus was. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And he's here. That's good news. The prophet like unto Moses has arrived. You know, the, the Jewish people had been in darkness up until now. For over 400 years, they had no prophets. They had no prophetic witness. They had no word of God. The glory of the Lord had left the temple through the east gate. Ezekiel tells us that. And the Jewish people were left in darkness for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now, all of a sudden, the Messiah is here. The one that was promised, he is here. That is the greatest news that a Jewish person could have heard. And thirdly, we see that he is Christ the Lord. Israel had experienced wave after wave of crappy kings or crappy lords, and now they're, they're subject to Rome. The news that there has arrived a righteous Lord who deserves our lordship, that's good news indeed. You know, our culture doesn't really uh, see authority as a good thing. I used to despise authority when I was in the world. But now I'm super thankful for the authorities that God has placed over me. I realize that I need them. I, I realize that they're there for a purpose, that they are a good thing. But I'm especially thankful that Jesus is my ultimate authority, that he is, has the lordship of my life. Over 6,800 times in the Bible, God reveals himself as Lord. More than any other time. This shows us that first and foremost, God wants to identify with us as a, a, a Lord and us being his vassal. That's the relationship he wants us to have. He wants to relate everything to us on a lordship level. He wants to be our Lord. And, and notice how it says that he is the Savior Christ the Lord. Right? It's Savior and Lord. The two go together. In Acts 2.36, Jesus is preaching. There, or Peter's preaching there on Pentecost. And he says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's both Lord 
in Christ. You can't have one without the other. You can't. He can't be your savior if he's not your Lord. You can't truly be your Lord without him being your savior. Those two go hand in hand. In Matthew eleven twenty through thirty, Jesus says these famous words. He says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest." That's great, right? Come to me. I'll give you rest. I'm a Savior. Come to me. It'll be easy. But then he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's a yoke? It's a steering device for sheep. He's saying, Come and, and, and let me put my yoke over you. Give me control over your life. I need lordship. Now, every now and then, you'd get a, an aunt, and it would be called a, a stiff-necked aunt, and it wouldn't let you only put the uh, the yoke over it. It would shorten its neck like this. No, nah, you ain't getting that yoke over me, you know. Well, God says, don't be stiff-necked, right? Allow him to have that control in your life. And then in verse 13, the scene kind of changes once again. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now there's a host of angels, literally an army of angels. It's kind of paradoxical, right, that this army shows up to declare peace. But that's what's happening here. Point number six, you need to remember that you have been loved forever. Same word, you. Verses 13 and 14, it says this. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, there's a debate about uh, verse 14 and how it should be translated. Uh, In the NASB, it said, Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Some of the translations, like the NRSV, says this, and says, On earth, peace among those whom he favors. Seems a bit different. Which one's right? Well, I think both are. Those that have peace are those that he favors, and those whom he favors, he's pleased with. The only way you're going to have peace with God is by finding the favor of God. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. The only way we're going to ever come into a place of favor and peace with God is through his good pleasure. And the way that, and once we're in that, he's going to be pleased with us. This verse has to do with God's choosing us before the creation and having favor for us. You know, this year, time of year, it's easy to be lonely. It's easy to feel unloved. We look around and we see everyone celebrating together. We see everyone buying and giving gifts to their loved ones. Or maybe you don't have a special person to celebrate the season with. Maybe you don't have a special person to go and buy that gift for or to be excited about getting a gift from. Maybe you feel completely alone and unloved. Well, know this. 
that God loved you more than you can imagine. He loved you forever. He chose you before he created anything. And Jesus agreed to come to the earth and die on a cross for you before anything was even created. He, he foreknew you. He, he foreloved you. He knew you. He had a relationship with you before creation. You know, you, you're the, that pearl of a great price that, that, that Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. In verse 45, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in searching for fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. That's the way that God sees you. You might be feel unloved by the world, you know, overlooked by the world. You may not feel like the, the dreams that you've had, the relationships that you've wanted have come to pass. Well, know that God loves you more than anybody else ever could. And that means something that is huge. In verse number seven, or point number seven, I'm sorry, be a messenger of the gospel. Throw in the word messenger. I'll go pretty quick here. Verse 15, uh, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem now and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. So remember, the, the shepherds live in the field, and these angels, they come and they proclaim this message to these shepherds. Well, now these shepherds become the messengers. They become literally the angels, and they're going and proclaiming that same message to Mary and Joseph. They get to prophesy over the baby Jesus. What a privilege. And that's pretty awesome, right? Well, I find this, I find that during the Christmas season that people are more open to talking about the Lord, to having conversations about the Lord. You, you know, they're seeing things about Christmas, they're thinking about Christmas, they're hearing Christmas songs and things like that. And it's really easy to start to say, you know, get a conversation going and, and point to something and say, hey, yeah, well, what do you think about this? And then next thing you know, you're talking about the Lord. You're witnessing, and, and people are open to talking about that. You know, people's senses are heightened during this time. Uh, you know, people, they're overly excited or they're overly sad, things like that. And those are great people to bring the gospel to and, and, and to bring the truth about the word. It'll encourage them. We need to be open to sharing the gospel. You notice in verse 15 how they came in a hurry. Uh, it's hard to convey what the Greek says about this, that they came in a hurry. Um, they, they literally made a beeline to Bethlehem. Uh, you know, <laughs> they went as fast as they could. They, they didn't count the cost. It's not like they said, oh, man, we need to find so-and-so to take care of these sheep, and I need to make sure that, you know, I got my ship covered for tomorrow and working out all these details. No, they're excited. They heard from God, and they're just going after it. They're going to tell people about it. And, and, and that's the type of enthusiasm I think the Lord wants us to have. Remember that woman at the well? And Jesus had told her all that she'd ever did, revealed herself to her. And remember what happened? She left without her 
traversed and, and took off into the city to tell all the guys that, that, that she met him with the Messiah. It, it, it's that idea. It, it, it's, hey, I, I've met before. you got to come meet him. I, I, I can't do anything else till I tell you that. Point number eight, last one. You need to stay amazed. Don't lose your awe. Stay amazed. Don't amazed in awe. Verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. We need to be careful we don't lose our awe of what this region is. I talked about the, you know, my illustration of in Jerusalem, how it just became normal. I, I love this, how these angels are telling what they saw and, and heard from these angels. And, and it says that everyone's amazed. Everybody's wondering at these things that were told by the shepherds. And Mary's treasuring them. She's pondering them in her heart. You know, there's uh, some amazing truths that this season teaches us. And again, it's, it's really easy to forget about these things. I mean, think about this, that, that Jesus is lying there in that manger, and he's literally unable to say a word. He, he, he literally cannot speak, completely dependent on other people. Yet at the same time, he's upholding the entire universe by the power of his word, Hebrews 1.3 tells us. I mean, that's, that's huge. <laughs> I mean, that's just, you, you could think about that and have your mind blown for weeks. You know, or, 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 or how amazing our God is that he could take these seemingly random and, and even contradictory uh, prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah and, and bring them to pass. I mean, it, 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 that's an amazing thing to think about. I mean, some of these seem so contradictory that in John chapter 7, the, the Jewish people are arguing with the, each other, saying, hey, you know, I, I thought that, that the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. And, and other people are like, no, because he comes up out of Egypt. Well, how could these things be true? But God was able to orchestrate <laughs> the story where they were. You see, there's, there's a whole lot going on that's really supernatural in this story and in this time. And we need to be careful not to let it become ordinary, not just to get lost in the season. Amen? We need to use this season to worship. That's what the shepherds did. Verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen, just as been told them. So let's make worship the priority. So, yeah. There's a few things that will help us to think about, to apply in, in these next handful of days where we can get the most out of this Christmas season. Right? We, we could you know, get what God wants us to get out of it. We could celebrate this in a way that, that honors the Lord. Amen? So, God, oh, we thank you for this. Uh, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you that you became a man and came to the earth to die for us. Um, that is the, the greatest gift, the the greatest thing that this world has ever seen, Lord, and 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 uh, we thank you for that. Help us to be uh, like these shepherds, Lord, and help us to 
go and, and tell people about who you are and what you've done and, and help them receive that gift as well. Lord, may we use this season to honor you, Lord, and may, we, uh, may you use it to draw us closer to you. I thank you for these people. I thank you for this group. I pray for those that aren't here. Lord, I pray that you be with them, that you bless them this season, Lord, and that you bring them back to us. Um, but Lord, we're so thankful for who you are, everything you've given us, everything you've done for us, Lord, and uh, we just want to worship you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.